This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I can see you and I can read whether or not you think what I have to say on the topic is helpful, is interesting. You and I can build on nonverbal rapport that is engaging for your listeners. So I consider this to be an example of when you do want to use cameras, right? When the, the exchange is so much richer because we are both communicating visually. Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show. You're listening to one of the top 13 leadership podcasts in the world. Thank you so much for helping uh, get us there. And we're still celebrating that high on that announcement and uh, inviting you again to share practical human-centered leadership, all of the resources here with your friends, any managers, leaders in your life, but thank you for being here. And I know that you're gonna enjoy today's guest. We are talking about something that I think is on everybody's heart and mind today. Our guest today is Dr. Betty Johnson, and we are talking about some brand new, fresh research on a subject that so many of us are dealing with, and that is virtual work. And so we're gonna be talking about that in a number of ways, but let me tell you about, uh, Dr. Betty Johnson here. She is the founder and CEO of Bridging the Difference, and she helps leaders recognize misalignments between their goals and the behaviors that produce success, and then helps them bridge the difference for extraordinary results, hence the name of her business. She's got 30 years experience working in leadership and change, and she has a doctorate in the subject of leadership and change. She did her dissertation research around virtual work. So when I say fresh, we're talking dissertation level research and work around this whole virtual remote, and we're gonna get into hybrid, all of these things going on. But all of that research led to her new book just out called Making Virtual Work, How to Build Performance and Relationships. Very practical, can't wait to get into it. Welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Betty, thank you for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here, David. All right. Well, we're this is uh, making virtual work is what you call a skinny get to the point book, which <laughs> you know we love that kind of practical approach to things uh, around here on the show. Uh, but before we can get into that skinny dive right into a book, I got to ask you this question: uh, Thinking of yourself as a leader, if you can go back and and take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader, what might that be? Uh, my earliest memory goes way back to when I was about, about six or seven years old. I sold rocks door to door for my little red wagon. I did. I picked you rocks. Sold, up wait, my... I got to clarify. You sold rocks. <laughs> I did. I was a salesperson. I had a little red wagon and I picked up rocks in my neighborhood and then sold them door to door, knocked on the door. Would you like to buy a rock? And at that really tender age, I somehow already knew the law of scarcity because the, the rocks I had the most of, they were a nickel. The ones that I had the least of were a quarter. 
And then the others were a dime. And, you know, I sold out of those quarter price rocks really fast. Then I had this massive amount of mid-price rocks that uh, I didn't sell all of them, but the cheapest rocks, I rattled all the way back home with those cheap rocks in my wagon. Nobody wanted them. Now, what's the difference between the rocks besides their color, you know, um, know, and the only scarcity was what was represented in my wagon. So the reason I say that that is a leadership lesson is because it's informed everything that I do now. You know, what people want is what's scarce. And the reason it's scarce is just simply because we're not providing it. It's not because we're not able to. And when you think about the focus of this podcast and, you know, human-centered leadership, well, there's abundance. It's, it's, there's no end to how we can tap into and prioritize human-centered leadership. We just simply have to want to. And when we do, we sell more. You know, we sell more people in terms of their stickiness with our organization. We sell more clients because now our people and we show up in ways that are accountable. They believe in us. So that's um, that's one of my favorite stories. That is so good. I I have so many questions. I mean, I have questions about your book, but now I have questions about rocks. (laughs) I'm like, I collected rocks. I mean, I definitely collected rocks, but I mean... I, I'm wondering what kind of rocks that you were peddling for a quarter. Well, I was a rock star, wasn't I? Uh, they were, were. yeah, they, the quarter rocks were the brown ones. I mean, like I said, it was just the color. They were just brown. And okay, I, and I'll, I'll leave it alone after this, but who were your buyers? Uh, mothers at that time who were at home. And I was in the afternoon after school, you know, able to go door to door and knock on the door and mothers would, this was back in the day, right? Back in the day when we didn't have most homes with two parent incomes. And yeah, so they probably thought I was cute as I'll get out. (laughs) They might not have been buying the rock. They might've been investing in Betty. Well, they might've been. And isn't that really what leadership is about as well? I mean, when I have people who work for me, they're not buying my company and they're not buying my products. The people that work for me, they're buying me as a leader, how how I show up, their desire to support me, to give that extra effort, to go the extra mile and to do so willingly. And like those, those mothers at the door, you know, do so with a smile because you know what? It feels good to do that. So true. So true. Wow. Well, I've also learned now that I was working way too hard as a kid. <laughs> I should have been selling rocks. I love that. So much, so much about that. I just love hearing these these memories of ourselves as leaders and influencers and in all the different ways that that shows up when we're young. All right. So this this notion and everything you just said about leadership and, and our connection to our people and so forth is a perfect segue into making virtual work. So uh when we're talking about making virtual work, one of the focus uh, sets of focus in your book is about video conferencing, video meetings, and what makes them exhausting. And you've got recipes for how we can not be so exhausting in, in our remote work. So I, I would just want to share this uh, sentence or two from the book and then have you kind of complete it for us and, and take us on this journey. You start early on by saying the most significant measure of whether you're a mediocre leader or a great leader is not how smart you are. It's not how driven you are. It's not even how innovative you are. 
the greatest measure of your worth as a leader is, and then take us on the rest of that journey. What is it? What is that greatest measure of your worth as a leader? Well, it's really how you create followership. And whether your people are happy working for you, whether they do give you that extra effort we were just talking about, and not just happy and giving you the effort, but are they really telling you what's on their minds? You know, the complexity of the world today means, well, there's so many additional variables when you think about how we run our businesses and the things we need to all the, you know, like it, it, it's not that you're keeping your eye on the ball because there isn't a ball, right? There is a complexity to keep your eye on. And the only way to understand the ever-evolving, ever-increasing, emergent, morphing, shape-changing variables that drive your business is through your people. There's no way a leader can hold all of that, can capture all of it, no matter how deep the desire. And unfortunately, what happens with a lot of leaders is we cut, we cut it off. We cut off that stream of ingenuity and wisdom of experience that if we only tapped into it, we could make such better decisions. And when we use the, the wisdom, the experience, even the opinions, if we don't think they're wise, you know, if we, if we take them on, really listen, look for the pearl that's in there, whether we like the message or even how it's delivered or not, look for the pearl, what's useful, and then make good use of that pearl, well, what happens is people want to give you more. They want to tell you more. Well, since that helped, let me tell you about this other experience over here. Or here's a risk I see coming. Or I think a mistake is about to be made, and I think it's my fault. And so I just want to get ahead of this. All of the things that require risk-taking in the workplace really only happen when you have leadership that's listening, truly listening, and wanting to know. A leader who has the mindset of, there's just a whole lot I don't know and will never know. And that's why I have you. And that's really what your worth is here. It's not just your ability to get these tasks done because a lot of robots could do that. What, what's useful about you is what you're bringing. So, so it's not about me being smart or me being innovative or any of those other things. It's about me being the person who creates this followership from and with other people because I'm honoring what they bring to the table. And at the end of the day, that's really what's underlying making virtual work. Just because people are out there and I'm here as a leader and wondering what's my job now since I can't manage by walking around, instead of reverting to the place where I still try to do that by surveilling them through video cameras or having video meetings just to check in and keep everybody engaged, you know, which is one of those phrases that just grates on my nerves. Instead, how about just having a touch base where, tell me what's going on? What's on your mind right now? What are you seeing? What do you think I should be aware of? Wow, there's the good stuff, right? So much, so much. And the 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 connectivity, the the drawing in those best aspects of our humanity, and, you know, we often talk about it when we talk about courageous cultures, our, our latest book, we, we talk about that. What you just said is that, look, if, if it can be routinized and automated, it's going to be. If robots aren't doing it, they're going to be. Your competitive advantage are your people and the extent to which you're able to do all the things that you just said. Bring all of that um, ingenuity, perspective, opinion, all of that to the table to, to do the, the best work you can do. And you just highlighted something that's really important for everybody listening to the show right now. That element, your capacity to do that is your humanity. That's your genius. That's the human part you bring 
that nobody else can bring. And I, I, I have not heard it said that way before, Betty. I just thought that was very poignant. And I want to make sure we ca captured that because that's the human element of our leadership, isn't it? It is. And I think the reason I'm so quick to make a statement like that is because I, I have a new research project on dignity at work. And it closely it ties to this whole thing about meetings, because, you know, really meetings are the place where people either they do speak up or they're shut down or they are able to reflect on their thoughts and make meaning of them with people with people or they um, are dis discounted or criticized. And so that dysfunction or functionality is really rooted in dignity and the principles of dignity, which is um, which is what I'm um, studying now. And in fact, I closed my survey on Friday. We're gathering data, my co-researcher and I on what happens when your dignity at work is affirmed or violated? Who, who does it? What do they do? How do you feel? And then what do you do as a result? And we believe that this study is going to point to specific business outcomes that that arise out of our ability to honor the humanity in other people. And what's beautiful about dignity at work is it's reciprocal. You know, if, if I were to somehow dishonor your dignity here, your worth in this venue, I would at the same time being dishonoring my own. Mm. It doesn't happen one without the other. It's reciprocal. Right. It's mutual. And once a leader can realize that when I interrupt someone or shame them uh, or don't allow them to get the voice in the room or bring them into an hour long meeting and all I do is talk at them, I'm, I am offending their worth at work. And when I do that, where's the worth for me? I've just not just wasted their time. I've wasted my own. And also, what do they think of me? Am I somebody they want to follow? Absolutely not. It's thinking of all the value that's destroyed in those kinds of interactions. Okay, standing invitation then. I, I can't wait to see the research. Please send it to me once you're done. You've got some conclusions. You can be to the level of white paper. You don't have to have the whole book. And let's uh, let's have another conversation about dignity right. and what you find there. And, and related to this is something that before we get into the nuts and bolts of, uh, you've got a whole recipe for us, which I'm excited to talk about. But before we go there, you talk a lot in making virtual work about one characteristic, one skill that is vital and underlays all of this, and that is empathy. Mm -hmm. And you, you stress the role that empathy plays in so many ways. So help us understand what is empathy. Sometimes we get confused about that. What is empathy? And then how does it play into making virtual work? This is one of my favorite subjects because there's so much misinformation. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, my clients included, you know, you say empathy, it's like people recoil because what they think is, oh my God, I don't have time for that. And I am so tired of hearing these people complain. And what about the whiners? And am I supposed to really listen when it's the same repeated complaint over and over again? And my sister is an empath and, you know, she's just a hot mess. I mean, people say things like this to me. I'm, these are direct quotes. Um, and what I love to help leaders understand is empathy is not a feeling and it's also not tolerating. It's not getting dragged out on the undertow of somebody else's negative emotions. It's not swirling down into this whirlpool of hopelessness with them or, I'm, you know, not I'm not taking it all on myself. You're not taking it on and you're also not even tolerating it, right? There's no tolerance here because what you're really doing is listening with, with, inquisitiveness. And, and you're doing so in a way that's pretty efficient if you're a good leader. 
So if someone was to say to me, I'm just sometimes painting a story is the, you know, the way that you can really understand these concepts. So if someone just say to me, Betty, you know what? I don't have any more of these meetings with you. Like I am too busy. Maybe that sounds like a familiar refrain. Then I would say, tell me more about that. Well, look, I've got so many tasks and I'm already working two and a half hours more every day than I used to work just to get my regular work done, while also people are, like you are pulling me into these meetings where I just listen to stuff that's not helpful to me. And then I'm listening for the emotion that's in that, right? Because now I have the facts, but the emotion in it is Betty's really frustrated. She's got, feels like she's got a weight on her chest. She can't get her work done. She's probably fearful about her performance rating. And she's also resenting people like me. So I can hear all of that. I don't have to say like a psychiatrist, well, how does it feel to you? You know, that's not necessary. I'm hearing it because I'm plugged in and I'm allowing myself to resonate with, wow, that must be really, that must smell, you know, to, have to do something like that. So then the next question for me is, well, I get where you're coming from. Uh, you know, here's what I've heard you say. What's going to make this better for you? I, I need you in some of my meetings because you have wisdom and I don't want to miss out on what you know, but I hear the aggravation in the weight. So what would make things better for you? And then wait for it. Let them tell me what they need and want. Let them tell me what they need and want. And then when I do that as a leader, I'm helping them and I'm helping myself. So that's the principle of, of empathy. It's listen to understand, let it emotionally resonate, and then do what makes things better for them. Too often as leaders, we listen and maybe we resonate or think, oh God, here we go again. You know, we have this rejection because it's very scary. We don't want to have emotion contagion. We don't want to be dragged down. We, we've got too many problems. We're running too fast to really, we think, to resonate. But if we do that for a moment, it puts us in a place where we want to do what makes things better for them. And you know, when, but for that person, if I change up how I design my meetings or invite them only part of it or invite them to fewer of it or let them design the meeting, whatever's going to make it better for them when I do that, I win. Everybody wins. So that's the underlying principle of empathy. So let's unpack that just a little bit. So we're, we're starting by listening to truly understand and particularly take stock of the emotion that we're hearing. So not just the facts, so the facts are important, but also, and also what's the emotion that, that is, is being picked up there that we're mirroring that in some fashion, you know, wow, I hear that you're really frustrated or, or feeling overwhelmed by the, the number of meetings or whatever it is that, so we're acknowledging that emotion uh, I call that reflect to connect in terms of um, mm -hmm. he hearing and acknowledging the emotion. And then, and this is the part is that where empathy is in action, the do what they need to make things better aspect. Yes. And that's the crucial part. M most of us get the first two uh, and maybe we get them poorly. Right. So we'll listen to understand and then we'll say, I know just how you feel which is the opposite of empathy, right? That we right. think that we're resonating when we say, I know just how you feel. Min minimizes. I had dinner with someone last night. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the death of my mother. And she says, I know just how you feel. And I thought, mm. I don't think so. So it's not, that's not really empathy. That's turning the conversation to be back about yourself when you do that. Mm -hmm. Empathy is staying with that person's reality, their experience. You've, I have a visual device that I use when I do it, which is I've got my own reality, right? And I'm going to put that on a shelf for a minute and be with you. I'm not letting go of it. I can still see it. It's still relevant for me. But for now, I'm going to be in your place 
right? And really resonating with you, not letting it wash over me and take over control. There's a self-other management going on there, but we can only do what makes things better for the other person when we truly know what the other person's experience is. And this is how we get ourselves in knots with each other is we assume we know what's right for the other person. You know, the heroic leadership can assume that and jump in and take over, take control, rescue a situation and create a whole lot of drama because there's an assumption. Or do a lot of completely unnecessary work and you're wasting all kinds of time and emotional energy. The element there of doing what they need to make things better that and the, the example that you shared with us is it's not assuming we know what's going to make things better. It's asking them and, and sharing our reality as well. Wow, sounds like you're really frustrated and feeling overwhelmed. I w- we need to address that. And I also need your wisdom or, or whatever that looks like, whatever it is that the, the actual need is, not just our need for control or power, but the actual contribution. These are the needs. Let's talk about how we might solve for these. What, yeah, what and, right. And and so the, the phrase, do what they need to make things better is, is short, so it can fit into a graphic image, <laughs> you know, but it's really packed full of a lot of stuff, which is you can't know what's going to make things better for them until you ask. Mm-hmm. You can't know until you ask. And it doesn't mean that you only do what makes things better, because as a leader, of course, you have limitations to what you can do. You have policies and regulations and realities. But this joint design, this co-creation of making things better is another principle of dignity uh, where we enlist the other person in um, taking action on their own behalf with us, with our support. Beautiful. This is a dissertation in human-centered leadership right here. I love this. Very practical, uh, amazingly connected and creates a foundation for the recipe and all that you're talking about with regard to virtual work. So we'll we'll stick, as, as we're talking about empathy, we're talking about these things, uh, stick to a purely virtual world, and then maybe we can get into some of the hybrid later. But, yeah. you know, in the book, you talk about as we're, as we're practicing empathy and, and so on, abandoning the way of the dinosaur. And those poor dinosaurs, they took, you know, whatever it was, thousands and thousands and thousands of years to go extinct. And and for us, the dinosaur, it's like, well, that was six months ago. You know, the world seems like it's changing so fast. It is, yes. What are we talking about? Abandon the way of the dinosaur. What are our dinosaur habits, our ways of thinking? What is it? What are our dinosaur characteristics you're talking about? I think mostly I'm talking about the leadership practices that emerged in the um, military industrial revolution era. Even how our organizations are hierarchically structured today is a reflection of a military structure. And it arose out of that industrial era, you know, when we really didn't know how to how to create structures that would that would produce an entity or a system that would be high performing. We just only knew what we knew, which is this is how the military works. And people follow orders and they get things done. And if they don't, well, you know, they might get killed on the battlefield. And that worked. And in fact, our, in the United States, all of, all of our organizational structures have this as a fundamental foundation. You only have to look around at how people present, how they speak, how they give direction, how org charts are put together, and people don't want to speak up out of turn in the hierarchy. And that really is the way of the dinosaur. 
you only have to look at the great resignation to see it. People are no longer willing to just put up and tolerate and do as they're told, in when, especially when they think that doesn't make any sense. It is a, um, it discounts their worth. It's not engaging or meaningful. And it's not just millennials who only want meaningful and engaging work. The research is showing us that thank God for the millennials because they're finally putting voice to what we, the boomers have been thinking, which is, you know, why am I doing this? Is this my beautiful life? As David Byrne said, I think this work really can be such a beautiful life. It is for me. It is for many of the people that I know and work with because we are actualized in it. You know, we are bringing our best and we're able to do that because of leadership, because le leadership has abandoned this command control. I'm the sergeant. You follow my orders. If you don't like it, go get a job somewhere else. You know, that mindset is just not going to sustain organizations any longer. And it's not just because of millennials. It's also because back to that thing we were talking about before, the complexity, all the variables are changing so fast that if I don't lead in a way that is instead of commanding, it's enlisting, instead of ordering, it's asking and suggesting and, and, and looking for what did I miss? <laughs> Creating that enrollment and that in investment and Exactly. So it's the, that's the sticky stuff, you know? And, and incidentally, even when you're talking about uh, uh, military forms, even that, uh, you know, in the uh, intro or the, the prelude in the book, you're talking about some of the experiences you had with a variety of different high caliber military leaders and the yes. way that they led and didn't rely on command and control. Yes. Yes. And so when I speak of that military industrial area, I'm really talking about the 40s, you know, which is um, when it was at its peak. And now even the military, well, not just now, um, U.S. military for quite some time has recognized that when you're in a, a life and death situation, the hierarchy is is absolutely essential. If you're a firefighter, the hierarchy is absolutely essential or a policeman, or you know, if you're responding to life-threatening crisis, there is no doubt. But the, the life is, is a um, you know, delay on your supply chain, a life-threatening crisis, it really isn't. And so what that, that strategy of command control is so overplayed, it's overplayed into every dimension of leadership. And that's what is disenfranchising people. Yeah causing them to check out, causing them to not speak up when you could really use the stuff they know. Yeah. And it, the reality is it comes easy with some of our, you know, fight, flight or freeze uh, types of, of approaches to life in, in some of those things. And the skills that you're talking about take a little bit of work to acquire, but in you practice, do. but boy, are they effective. All right, let's take this this foundation. Uh, we've, we're abandoning, we're getting rid of our dinosaur thinking and approaches. We're practicing empathy with three elements that you've guided us through. Set the foundation for what makes our virtual work exhausting. Particularly, we're talking about cameras and some of the meetings and all these, these some of these elements. What did you find in your research? And and then we'll get into okay, what do we do about it? 
Yeah. So let's come down from the clouds a little bit. We've sort of been talking about theory and ideas, which are really exciting and hold so much promise. The reason that I examined virtual meetings is because like this is where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> All that theory that we've just been talking about, either you're playing it out and you're being that command and control leader or you're enlisting people in your meetings. It's like meetings are a microcosm that represents the larger society. Harriet Schwartzman said this back in 1979. She was the first person to ever empirically research meetings. So she gets props. So Harriet Schwartzman said, meetings are both, are, uh, both inform and are informed by the external environment. So what happens in your organization shows up in your meetings. What happens in your meetings is going to show up in your organization. So it's a fulcrum. It's a fulcrum for change. If what you're looking for is that kind of human-centered leadership, meetings are the place where you can push the lever, press the, the button, whatever you want to, metaphor you want to use, this is where you can get traction. You don't have to upend your organizational structures. You don't have to redesign your org chart. You don't even have to go in and turn yourself upside down and inside out to be an empathetic leader. Just use the practices that provide a place for people to get stuff done and build relationships, and you're going to be on that path. That's why I'm so excited about meetings, not because I'm a nerd <laughs> and not because I'm just a researcher, but because I know from my own experience as a leader, the other research that I've done, you know, being in this, this in performance improvement space for quite some time, like meetings are magic. And then they're either black magic or magic for good. Right? I, I so, love that. They are put, magic. It's just yeah, what so kind of magic are we talking You can about? put a hex on your people, you know, or you can create something really magnificent. So in the, in the middle of the pandemic, I noticed that I was so wiped out after uh, video meetings. I mean, I didn't have to be in my whole day. You know, it might be in a three-hour video meeting, and I would have to go lay down on the sofa, turn the lights down low. I was wiped out. And on an extrovertism scale, you can probably just tell by my voice, I'm way up there on extrovertism. I love being with people. I love being in conversation. I love hearing what other people have to say. I'm totally into it. And I was fried. So my... The study I had designed for my dissertation, I could no longer do because we were in what was called lockdown. So I thought to myself, self, back to that little red wagon, right? What are you, what are you selling here? What do you really want to know? And I, th I thought, I want to know why I'm so tired because mm -hmm. I think I know, but and it's not just me. Why is everybody else so tired? I can see it. People are complaining about it. What is it? So I had these ideas, what I thought was causing the fatigue. And what I thought we might be able to do about it. So I designed this survey. That's a lot of questions, including 19 different sociodemographics. I had a lot of preconceived ideas, most of which were wrong. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we do the research. That's why we do the research. And you know, some new things, new things cropped up. Bottom line, there are a few things that are exhausting us. That was your question, right? What is it that's really wiping us out? Well. This is what my research, research participants said. Now, the thing to know is I often will just quote exactly what they say is etched into my brain. And I'd rather do that than use my own words because there's power. So what, what is wearing, even now, <laughs> is wearing people out with their video meetings is the leader who goes blah, 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 while I have to stare at that little green dot. That's the talking head, right? That's not inquisitive. Another thing that wears me out, having to show up and pretend that I feel something when I don't. 
Uh, and that is like making as if I like the news that you're delivering about this new come back to work policy, but I'm really thinking, oh my God, I am not ready for it. So I'm gonna put on the happy face and pretend or at least a neutral face and look like I'm not you know, resisting. So I that's find that physically exhausting. It like is. That's called actually physically exhausting. Mm -hmm. It is. So this practice, we'll just take them one at a time. The first thing of the blah, blah, talking head is because it's not inclusive, right? Lack of inclusion wears people out. And certain people are even more sensitive to lack of inclusion than others. For example, women are interrupted far more frequently than are men. Men interrupt women more frequently than they interrupt men. Women interrupt women more frequently than they interrupt men. Interrupting women is a problem. It compromises voice and agency and it wears women out. Number two, that's just one example of the talking head thing. Um, service acting is when I show up and I pretend to have positive feelings when my feelings are anything but positive. So that example of you're announcing we're going to be phasing in going back to work and I'm going to try to maintain a neutral expression. Meanwhile, I'm thinking I have to find another job. I don't want to do this. So service acting is a form of emotional labor. It's highly correlated with emotional exhaustion. It was in my study, too. The more meeting video meetings you attended, the more you engaged in service acting and the more you engaged in service acting, the more emotionally exhausted you were. Right. So it's definitely just a cause effect trail. And surface acting is different than this thing that many of us do, which is impression management striving. So you and I, we're, we see each other on camera right now. We're very relaxed. There's no, I'm not trying to impress you with my personal energy or how I look or what I'm wearing or what my background looks like or the words that I'm using. I'm just relaxed. I'm being authentic. But if I was in a context with you where I couldn't do that, where I felt like I had to be wearing a jacket in my own home, um, where I felt like I couldn't display what was in my background because maybe it wouldn't be up to snuff to what's in your background, where I was a little uncertain about the topic, but I needed to bring it. You know, I need to bring that energy of expertise, even though I might be feeling like this 2D environment makes it hard to do that. All that is impression management striving. It's like what an actor does on a stage. I want you to believe me in my role. I am believable as Dr. Betty Johnson. And to be believable in this environment is tough. Now there are no scales to measure impression management striving, but it too is highly correlated with emotional exhaustion. So if this is resonating for any of your listeners. Like, yeah, you know, I have to show up. I just feel like I have to bring it in a different way, um, which is one of the, what a salesperson said in my research. I feel like it's always been tough in a group to bring all the energy that a group needs, but in video, it's a whole new level. Yes. Yeah. So those are three of the things. There's some other things, but those are, those are, those are three. The big one that I haven't mentioned yet, the, the Mac daddy of wearing out <laughs> Ness is uselessness. Oh. So one of the things we measured was to what extent were the video meetings you had last week useful to you? And then we correlated that with their level of emotional exhaustion based on using, you know, using an emotional exhaustion scale. Well, the more useless the, the participant viewed their meetings to be, the more, the higher they scored on emotional exhaustion. Which makes sense. Which yeah. makes sense. But think about this framing. 
how often do we think about what is going to be useful to the meeting participant? We as the leader, we're all about what's going to be useful to me. I need to get status reports. I need to know what's going on. How are people, you know, are people, I need, I need, I need. I need. It's like and, a multiplier. Yeah, well, yes. And so if I'm thinking about what I need, and let's say I'm holding a one hour weekly meeting to get what I need, status reports, I've got nine people on my team. Well, are those nine people finding that meeting useful to them where all they're doing is giving information they already know and then listening to each other do the same thing round robin? It's completely useless for them unless there's some kind of interdependency. Well, if it is useless for them, you have wasted a full day of collective productivity with one one hour meeting just to get what you need. That uselessness is wearing people out. Yep. Today's worker wants every minute they spend to be useless to useful to them in terms of getting their job done, building relationships, growing their career. Those things are what matter. And if the meeting isn't providing for it, you're wasting their time. And what's striking me about this of the four that you've mentioned, and the you called this the the Mac the big one, the the Titanic of all of them is that it's also applicable in any in-person or hybrid meeting as well. That that usefulness Absolutely. component is, and it yeah. you take all of the other aspects that are exhausting that you, the first three that you shared, and then multiply it by, and this is useless. This is a waste of my time, and no wonder that's exhausting. No wonder that's exhausting. Now, in an in-person venue, when when everybody's there in person, if that if that is ever going to really happen again at any frequency, let's just say it will. Let's just be optimistic. Well, at an in-person meeting, what can happen is I can show up maybe 15 minutes early, meet with you. We can have some laughs. We can catch up on the weekend. I'm bonding with you. I'm building that relationship that not only helps me feel better and gives meaning to my work, but you know, if I needed you for something, I could probably call on you later too, right? Because we built a connection. So usefulness in terms of building relationships is not to be discounted. It's really important. But in a video meeting environment, usually the person who's leading the meeting is so tightly constructing it that there really isn't opportunity for relationship building. So that little bit of Benny we got by, you know, kicking back in the conference room for a few minutes, it, it's missing largely from the video meeting context. And even if leaders recognize it's important, what they do is they, they show up and they tightly construct the, you know, small, so-called small talk. It's not small talk. It's, you know, it's got, there's a question. It's, it's like, answer the question and let's go around in order. It's, it's once again, it's that command and control. Like if I don't control this thing, it could go off the rails. And what I would say is, well, you need to have some time for people to go a little off the rails so they can connect really connect because that's the messiness where life happens yes <laughs> where relationship happens right exactly yeah we the, the the standard that i invite people to consider when you're running a meeting when you're inviting somebody to a meeting is is this the most productive and i put the word productive in quotes is this the most productive use of their time and there are a number of ways we can define that. It may be for building relationships. It may be gaining them visibility and their expertise is important to this decision, or it may be that there's some uh, thing, but why would we want somebody doing anything else than whatever's a fantastic use of their time? Yeah. If we're really thinking smart about all this. Yeah, I, I guess how I ask that same question is, is this a good use of time? Because mm. productivity can be over, fetishized right, right right we can we can worship productivity at the expense of relationships and 
the evidence shows that they're really interdependent. Relationships and productivity are highly interdependent, especially among knowledge workers. So when I talk with clients about this, I say the thing to ask is, is this going to be a good use of their time? And why do you think so? And how you get to that is what's the purpose of the meeting and what's the target outcome? All right. Now, is this target outcome going to be of use? Is it going to be a good use of time getting there for these people? Because if it's not, either make them optional or just say, I'm thinking you're not, your voice isn't needed in this conversation, but if you think differently, say why, because I don't want to exclude you if you've got something to add. Well, that, that gets into some of the things that we can do. And you have, I think, what might be my favorite pie chart in any book I've ever read, <laughs> because I'm a baker and you can't see the visual, but it's an actual pie, like a side view, three dimension or, a, you know, kind of pie with the little slits on top and steam coming off the top. So that's my favorite pie chart. You've got 11 ingredients that you talk about that go into doing what, getting back to empathy, doing what helps. And, and you, you've started us off by saying, okay, if empathy is do what they need to make things better, then the reason that this works is you did the research to find out what it is they need that's going to work. You, you had your thoughts, but now you found out. So we don't have obviously time to do all 11 and I want people to get this book because it's fantastic. So if you were to pick, and I know that they interact and they relate just like a good pie recipe. Yeah. But if you had to pick a couple places for us to start that we can wrap our head around. Yep, sure. So what I, what I put forth is think of this pie chart as a recipe, not a menu. It's, you can't go in and just order one item from it, because if you do, you will have a dish that nobody wants to put on their plates. How you mix these ingredients to, to bake this pie, it really matters. And it's not rocket science. It's, it's a little bit of alchemy. And so the book will tell you how to do it. And, uh, and in the voices of my research participants. So this particular chapter eight in the book is almost entirely written first person voice from the collection of participants. So not my ideas, theirs. What I would say is fundamentally where we get messed up and we can't use all the other parts of the ingredients. It's like, if you, if you don't have, if you don't have cherries, you can't make a cherry pie. So if you don't have this particular ingredient, you're not going to have a pie. And that, that ingredient is for every meeting that you schedule, state the purpose of the meeting and the target outcome. Most people don't state the target outcome. Most people don't even know what the target outcome is. They're just locked up in the process. Oh, we need to discuss the project. To what end? Right. So let's just think sports, you know, the Super Bowl, which was recently, if you don't know where the goalposts are, how do you know when you won the game? How do you even know when it's time for a timeout? You have to know what you're headed toward. And if everybody knows where the goalposts are, now we can all move down the field together and hit it. So the target outcome for a meeting would be something like this. Uh, with a if the purpose is discuss the uh, project status, target outcome, identify any emergent risks. Okay, that's, it's not rocket science, right? It's just, now I know this meeting is about identifying emergent risks. I don't have any. Do I need to hear if other people do? No, I can just get the meeting notes. Okay, I'm out. 
I don't need to be in that play. So all of a sudden I have 30 minutes or an hour of found time back on my calendar to do my tasks if I'm a project team member. What if the project leader gets a whole bunch of people that says, I'm out, I don't have anything. Well, then we're getting into a place of trust. Does a project leader trust that people did have known risks? They would say so. Does the project leader trust that people are even aware that they need to be looking for emergent risks? Now you have a different conversation, you have a different meeting topic. You might have, uh, the purpose might be discuss what emergent risks might look like. And then the target outcome is apply the un new understanding to look at this project with a different lens. So, so now we have a different target outcome. We know exactly what we're shooting for. No one is vague. Everyone knows how to get their voice in the room. Purpose and target outcome. And look, if you can't even have the purpose, fine. Just have a target outcome. Everybody knows a meeting is the, for the purpose of discussion. What's your target outcome? And if, the, if your purpose is to tell and not discuss, record yourself on video and send the file. Don't or send an email or a text. Yeah. Don't, just don't waste people's collective same time work hour. Because what might be more important to me is to put this fire out while somebody else needs to be going over and doing an interview for a new hire. And there's that there are nine people. We all have things we need to be doing, but you've just required us all to collapse our day into this one hour of a useless meeting, putting all those other very important tasks on the back burner. Well, that's not productive, right? As you would say, but it's also not good for me. Mm -mm. It's not good for me. I suffer. So much wisdom there. The purpose, the outcome. I'm thinking through so many different applications. That's fantastic. All right. So we've set that. We've got our pie crust or our cherries, uh, whatever metaphor we're using. Now we're going to get some other ingredients in there. Okay. So we need some butter. We need some cinnamon. I might be a little hungry right now. That's okay. You've got several other ingredients and uh, things like uh, lots of breaks and taking turns. Mm -hmm. Things that, you know, I, I think at this point in, in working with our clients, I see a lot of energy towards not scheduling back to back and trying to have, you know, some enforced no meeting zones or getting five or 10 minutes at the top or bottom of each hour where we're not scheduling meetings, things like that. But you had mentioned inclusivity earlier and, and does taking turns factor into that? Um, what do you mean by taking turns? Oh, that's a great question uh, because it's something that's really overlooked, not just by the meeting leader, but by other participants. Now, in this conversation with you, I'm doing most of the talking. I'm aware I'm doing most of the talking and uh, I'm watching to make sure you don't feel like I'm talking over you or too much. But in a meeting, and here's how I classify a meeting. A meeting is a gathering of three or more people for the purpose of accomplishing something related to work. And the reason why that magic number is three is that between two people, it's really easy to get a synergy. Right? It's just not that hard. But once you get three people in a room, one person typically dominates. And the more people you get in the room, the more that domination begins to exclude other voices. The people who dominate conversations typically are not aware that they do it. I will raise my hand. I'm one of those people. Mm. When you use up more than your fair share of the airtime, you're only talking about what you know, so you're not learning. 
you're not learning what other people know. And other people are not learning what other people know. So we get back to this complex environment of conducting business and this idea of heroic leadership where I'm supposed to be the person who knows everything. And so I do most of the talking. It's so embedded in our culture and it shows up with lack of turn-taking. As an inclusive leader, the way to enable turn-taking is to ensure that your agenda promotes it. And I have a, a process that I have been using with clients for quite some time. It's intentional meetings. It's a trademark process. But for creating turn-taking, this step is that you create your agenda with time slots assigned to the people who are attending, the people who know the most about that particular topic. Not so they can speak on and on about it, but so they can facilitate that conversation. They learn to be facilitators as well. They present what they know, they ask questions of the group, the group responds, a dialogue forms. I, as the leader, am sitting there as part of the group to ask questions, right? To seek additional input. And by setting up a meeting so that we know who's going to lead which topic, <clears throat> those voices that are more often marginalized, that is people of color and women, know how to get into the mix. It also helps preclude this cultural tendency for men to claim ownership of women's ideas. There's a lot of research on how this happens. You're nodding, so you're familiar with it. But, you know, a woman will put forth a suggestion in a meeting. I think we should do such and such. And like no response. And five minutes later, a guy will say the very same thing. I think we should do such and such. And it's like, great idea, Brad. So when you have this kind of structured turn taking to accomplish your agenda, then the ownership of the ideas rests with the person who states them. And that might be the person leading that agenda item or someone who contributed in conversation about that agenda item. A good rule of thumb, it's a rule of thumb, it's not an absolute, but a good rule of thumb is if you're not leading the conversation on a particular topic, you probably don't need to be at the meeting because you're just a spectator. And spectators can take a meeting off track. They can drag a meeting down. Spectators are multitasking. And when you finally do ask them a question, uh, well, uh, what, sorry, what was the question? You know, it's, a completely, <laughs> it's completely disrupting to have spectators. What you want is to have people in the meeting. They're there to do the business of the meeting to achieve that target outcome. If you have people that need to tag along because they can learn by listening, like an intern or someone new on the job, great. But don't invite people pro forma just to be inclusive. That's not inclusive. That's being used so much wisdom here so uh i gotta ask you we are like one minute to time here and i want to be respectful of that but uh betty if you have five or seven more minutes i'd love to take advantage of them what's your are you available or do you need to go i'm absolutely available and this is the highlight of my day talking with you so let's keep going all right let's keep let's keep going there you've just got so much wisdom to offer so listeners i hope that you're getting a sense of how much practical wisdom is packed into this skinny get to it we're not even talking 100 pages total i don't think 85 it's, pages it, and it i mean so you're, you're getting a sense and we have only scratched the surface there's that much value in this book for you so we've been talking about uh, uh making sure you've got the the foundation of the purpose and the outcome that are clear taking turns and structured approach to turn taking 
in order to be inclusive, in order to ensure that it is useful uh, all, and undergirds those elements. Let's get one more here. Um, actually, before one more, where can we find you? I want to make sure people know uh, where to find you, where to connect with you. You've got a variety of assessments that go with it. If you want to take a look at your virtual work and virtual meetings and see how am I actually doing? You've got some great yeah. assessments as well as around empathy and, and different aspects. Where do we connect with you? Oh, thanks for asking. My website is bridgingthedifference.com. My company name is Bridging the Difference, as you mentioned earlier, Dave, David, because you know, usually people are trying to get from here to there and they don't really know how to do it. And that's what our work is all about. So on my, on my site, there's a free survey for making virtual work. So you can get a bead on how well are you already doing with your meetings? It's free. It's super quick. You probably will get your eyes opened with some of the questions and not, not necessarily your answers to them. But when you read the question, you'll think, oh, OK, I'm not doing that. And, <laughs> and maybe I should. And we also have an empathy assessment and inclusive leadership assessment, some other really great tools for thinking about how you show up as a, a humanistic leader. One of the ways that's great for staying abreast of not just the results of the dignity research, the new findings related to meetings and so forth is by subscribing to our company newsletter. We, we publish this on LinkedIn because we don't like to jam up people's emails. Everybody's busy. So if you go to Bridging the Difference uh, on LinkedIn, the site for Bridging the Difference, you will see where you can subscribe to our newsletter. And it comes once or twice a month. Um, it's not a salesy newsletter. It's a how-to newsletter. Here's some practical tips and guidance for how to be a better leader, create followership that lasts, enjoy your work as you do it, and create outstanding results for your company so that your, your career um, ascends. Those are the ways to find and follow me. And if you want to get the book, it's on, available on Amazon, Making Virtual Work by Betty Johnson. Fantastic. So I encourage you to take advantage of those resources, the assessment, the newsletter. Uh, I know you're listening. I know that's of interest to you. All right. And get the book. Go go get the book and, and uh, dive in. There's so much more here. The last one I want to uh, have us unpack a little bit. In the cold open, you talked a little bit about using cameras wisely. So I'm going to let that uh, suffice to give us a clue about when we should be using cameras and there's more available. The last one I'd like to talk about is the ingredient of being real. Something we've heard a lot about authenticity, transparency, the, the need for leadership, vulnerability, all of these different facets, aspects. You have a particular approach to what it means to be real and why that's important and how that prevents our meetings from being as exhausting. Yes, and this gets back to that um, surface acting. So impression management striving. I'm being real when I'm trying to bring it, right, and make that impression. It's not that I'm being inauthentic. I'm 100% authentic. So that, yes, it's very tiring to do in a virtual environment. But surface acting, which is pretending that you feel something that you don't feel so as to create this socially desirable response from someone else. Um, in my study of this, the variables that I statistically measured, it was the most significant to emotional exhaustion. And women do it more than men. And those findings in my study are congruent with findings from other researchers. So when we think about, okay, let's don't put people in a position where they have to surface act. That's a no brainer, isn't it? 
But my participants say the way that you do that is by not doing it yourself. Ah. <laughs> There's that reciprocity again. So if I have to show up, again, let's use, you know, something that's, that's in the news a lot now, which is we're going to phase in coming back to work and all of you are going to be coming in back to the office two and three days a week. And some of, I know some of you don't want to do it, um, but we really need to do this for the health of the business. And like, are you hearing anything authentic in my voice? I'm, I'm, I'm basically sort of reading you the facts from a teleprompter. And though I've overplayed it for the purposes of this podcast, that's actually how a lot of leaders show up. There's no emotional resonance when delivering bad news. Mm-hmm. News that people, not everybody is going to respond favorably to. I mean, some people can't wait to get back to the office. Awesome. Sure. Most managers and leaders are, I can't wait to get back to the office so I can see my people. Awesome. But many, many workers don't feel that way for myriad reasons. So being authentic means acknowledging within myself I also have a little misgiving about this because I know some of you do. Even though I can't wait to see you all, I have a little misgiving too. And just let the, the, let the honesty of that reality play in your voice, in your visual affect. Be real. As one participant said, just acknowledge the circumstances that we're all in instead of pretending they don't exist. I think what's happening with Russia and Putin's in, uh, invasion of Ukraine is another good example of this. It's not related to work, but it is because the, the people that we show up as at work are carrying that with us. And so Absolutely. just acknowledging that there is instability and uncertainty and, and longing and heartfelt concern it doesn't mean that we have to, again, be washed out to the ocean in uh, poor Ukraine or anger or whatever our emotions are, but to acknowledge this is how we're feeling. And we can, we can let that be here in this room that we feel this way and we can get good work done at the same time. In fact, we'll get better work done, won't we? Yes, because we've acknowledged the elephant in the room. Uh, We have acknowledged that we are all part of this one collective of humanity, that we are all striving and wanting and everyone has needs and and everyone has joys. So let's harness them by not faking it. Just don't fake it. You know, I I recall what what really put me on the surface acting thing and, and even this study it was one experience that I had in a meeting with a client group. We we're all in the Hollywood Squares view, you know, and this one woman, African-American woman, she was smiling like a lot of teeth. You know, you could see a lot of teeth in her smile. It's a big smile. And she held that smile for over an hour. And I, I saw your reaction just now. And even when I remember it, it chokes me up a little bit because I think of the suffering that must have been involved in that. What would compel you to feel like you had to show up that way at this time? What is so fearful that that you must pretend to that extent? What's the cost to you? What kind of energy are you going to have to go back and do the job for which you are so highly valued? What's your feeling about your place of employment? 
Do you feel like you belong or that you have to pretend to be somebody else in order to work here? What does that mean for your stickiness at this organization? What do you say on glass ceiling? What do you do when you are out with your friends having your Friday happy hour? How do you talk about your company? Do you recruit your friends to come work at this place or do you tell them stay away? Like just in that forced smile, there's a whole story. And bottom line, what led that woman to think that she needed to show up that way? It was how somebody else was performing. Or what notes were they taking exactly. from another leader or another set of leaders? Exactly. I need you to show up with a smile. A lot of the leaders in my research, when I asked them, what makes video meetings less exhausting for you? They said, when people show up with a smile. I want to see happy faces. I want to see people looking engaged and excited. And I thought, what cloud are you on? Because we're in a <laughs> pandemic. And that's what you want from them. You understand what by you're wanting that, the, the, the demand it puts on your workers. And you say you want that, right? But do you want what you get as a result of expecting that? I don't think you do. If you, if you play it out, what that expectation creates is exhaustion. Yeah. And, and that's the, not what you want. From an empathy perspective and the being real side of things, when are we showing up that way out of a sense of obligation and the consequent exhaustion, or is that legitimately how we're showing up? I don't know a human being that shows up that way. That, you know, we have a range that, you know, when we're in person, there's a range of expression in our resting face and our smiling face and our frowny face and all the faces that, you know, that that is, it's just how it works. And to not give ourselves that freedom and then have that and passed on to others is so painful. It's so painful, needlessly painful. Yes. And, and the, you know, and getting a little metaphysical here, but the violence it does to our spirit and then the, the way that that is multiplied and passed on to our teams is something to be aware of. And I really appreciate you calling our attention to it. Thank you. All right, we have we have covered a lot of ground here, given me a lot of things to think about. And I know uh, as you're listening, uh, you're probably wondering, well, now what about hybrid meetings? Uh, we've got these going on too, and and uh, and we are so out of time. I appreciate uh, Betty you, you sticking with us here. And so, listeners, I really hope you'll go connect with Betty because she's been overly generous with her time here. But if you had to give us a final sixty seconds or ninety seconds on this hybrid world, for those of us who find ourselves dealing with that, any particular approaches or ways to leverage some of the things we've already talked about maybe to help that pie still be tasty? Very easy to, to answer that question. Practice empathy, that three steps of empathy. For example, if you're, if you're conducting a meeting and you're in person and most of your team is in person, but a few people are absent, you know, they're, they're remote. What is it that they're feeling? about the fact that they're not in the room, emotionally resonate with how they're feeling that they're not in the room. They might be feeling great, okay? But they all might also be feeling excluded or bored. So emotionally resonate with that and then do what makes things better for them. How do you know what makes things better for them? Ask them. So for example, in one client meeting recently, we had uh, laptop Sherpas. So for each person who was remote, another person in the room dialed into a Teams meeting with them 
right? And had them on the full screen of a laptop, turn the laptop toward the room so that their face is in the room, but they can also see other people and then be on a conference call to have good hearing quality. And then that Sherpa, when we broke into smaller groups to talk about particular issues, the Sherpa would carry the person along with them to stay in the small groups. I mean, that's a simple solution. It's kind of low tech, but that's what worked in this environment. It's not what will work in every environment. It requires right. that we ask what will make things better for you. And that practice of empathy, if you haven't already had that undergirds everything we've been talking about. So the, the finding out how people are feeling, listening, actively listening, resonating with that, and then doing what they need to make things better by asking them and then taking action that's at the heart of all of this. And it's at the heart of being the leader that you'd want your boss to be. Dr. Betty Johnson, author of Making Virtual Work, thank you so much for being a part of the show today and, and sharing all of your wisdom with us. Thank you, David. It's just really lovely being here. All right, until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.